Hey everyone, and welcome back to Monopsony Podcast. I want to thank everyone for their patience. I've been in a little bit on the move here and moving back from Malaysia to the United States. And I'm thankful that all of you stuck with me as there were many discussions about the last episode and the case study. Today's episode will be going back through the case study and I'll be providing some context and some of the quote-unquote answers to what we brought up last episode. To begin with, I want to review the case. And the case was the decision point for the CEO of the film company to let his executive make cuts over the head of the animators and other members of the production team. Many of you were spot on when you got back to me that you thought the company in question was Disney. Uh, You're right. I use Disney as a template here. And the CEO we're talking about is, in fact, Michael Eisner. His second-in-command, the person making the cuts, was Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, his nickname went on to be Scissorhands uh, because of what he did to the Black Cauldron. So for the episode here, I'm going to go back through and talk about some of the things we might learn from this case study, including what, what the decision might be made from a leadership standpoint, financial considerations, strategic considerations, branding considerations, and then we'll go through kind of what happened after the case. Uh, finally, I'll bring up the beverage of the day. I'm drinking what's called Ayataka green tea. Uh, my wife-to-be, she said she wanted some tea. She bought Ayataka green tea, took one swig, and realized it had no sugar, and said it was mine. Uh, I love tea with no sugar. It's one of the finest things in life, and so I actually have to highly recommend Ayataka tea. It's fantastic. Go and get some. All right, let's go back through the case. So one of the first things I like to do when reviewing a case is think about the financial considerations that might go into any decision. When Michael Eisner is, in fact, deciding what to be done with the film, um, the film being The Black Cauldron, there's a reason you've probably never heard of it. We'll get to that later. One of the financial considerations here to consider is that it's the first Disney film to come out since about 1981 on the films on the, on the animation side. That means there's been about a four-year gap of no particular revenue coming in to the business. Uh, There is some consideration to say that this film should go forward without any additional delay and should go forward towards the production that they want in a shorter amount of time because they need to get revenue on the books. It's become the most expensive uh, film that they put out to date, and it's made no money. Part of this is that you have to consider that even if it loses money, it still brings in cash and revenue once it's released. So the amount of money you spent on it is irrelevant. Now, if you think it's going to do harm to other parts of your business, that could be a consideration to not release the film or to take more time with it, so to get it right so it can be revenue positive. But in the thought that there will be people going to try to see the Disney movie, there will be revenue at least coming in from the film. Um, And I think that plays a a little bit of a a decision into... uh, you know, the decision that Michael Eisner made to let Jeffrey Katzenberg make the cuts to the film. The film needs to get out the door, the film needs to be ready in time, and it needs to be the length that people are expecting. And so there is a financial uh, consideration to why you would let uh, those cuts happen over the head of the animators. A second point to think about is strategically, if making the cuts and getting the film out the door was in fact the best play for the product itself. Now this is a little more nebulous, 
one could say that taking more time with the film would have resulted in a better film, or not. It's unclear. Taking more time doesn't necessarily guarantee a better product. On the flip side, you can also can't point to the financial returns. You don't know that a product that is, that of its current quality will do well or will do uh, poorly. It's an unknown quantity to be received by an audience that is unfamiliar to Disney. This is a new branch into a new segment, and so it'll be received how it'll be received in a certain way. They can gauge it all they like, but they don't have any good metrics or understanding about how this audience actually wants their films. Disney and previous had always marketed towards smaller children and parents with smaller children, and they understood what those families wanted. That was their, their, their core group. This is a different core audience, and the different core audience might want different things that are not being presented, or it could hit the right note entirely, and it could be a spectacular success. Either way, the only way to find out how the film is actually going to be uh, you know, understood is to let it loose to the market. And the only way to get that to the door as fast as you can is ideally by making the cuts. Make the cuts, get the film out to production, and have it ready for distribution. Then you can understand the financial returns. If it's a success, as I assume Mr. Michael Eisner wanted it to be, you can make a second film that better highlights and better hits the mark on where you failed or where you were successful. If it's an incredible failure, you can also then learn from that. But you can't learn anything by keeping it in-house. Um, so that's part of the strategy here to understand whether they actually wanted to make this decision and move into this new market. The part that really interests me as it comes to Disney is that this film, again, The Black Cauldron, and as we discussed in the previous case study, is very, very, very off-brand. And when I say off-brand, previous Disney films all followed a similar theme in general. They were colorful, they were meant for children, they were about 90 minutes to an hour 45, uh, qualify for the bathroom test so no child has to you know really consider losing their ability to hold their hold themselves and they always involve music you can sing so many songs from disney from all the movies that came forward the black cauldron has no songs it's not singable it's you know it's it's not for children it actually has that large death scene of skeletons walking around children were crying when they left parents were crying when they saw how scary it was it's really an off-brand movie for them and a huge, uh, you know, d uh, change. Now, this could be a good thing because the market has changed and Disney shows they can adapt. It also is so wildly off base that it could, you know, hurt their brand. This is unknown. Uh, you have to consider that the mouse, the mouse is their brand. Their mouse and the ha ha, that kind of play for the mouse is really what they're about. But the Black Cauldron isn't about that. The Black Cauldron is about taking on the Horned King and killing his army of the undead spirits that pull out of a pour out of a black cauldron that is held by witches. So it is a little bit of a different a different thought process here. Additionally, though, I would put the two different other other points on the brand element here. Disney has never been known in the past, except for maybe with Snow White. They're not known as the cutting leading edge of animation. They're known for being quality animation, but not the tightest, most amazing technical animation. And the Black Cauldron went a long ways to putting them on a technical leadership point. Now, technical leadership costs a lot of money. They're talking about audio recording in high def, different lengths of uh, film, different sizes of film, different qualities, using computer graphics, even making that holographic projection that they were going to try to put into the film. All of those are, are, are ways that you can make the film seem technically superior to your competition and establish a new boundary. 
But Disney had never been about pushing the boundaries technically. That's not what they did. Disney was about animating for children and animating a, an easy story for them to comprehend with singing and songs and, you know, wonderful characters. It wasn't about the technical elements. Now, moving the technical elements forward was definitely in keeping with other movie elements. We're talking Jurassic Park. We're talking other, other positions here. But it was definitely not uh, a part of Disney's play to be technically superior. This could be spectacular because there are companies that specialize in being technical superiority. But it hasn't been Disney's forte in the, in the future. And this is, again, off-brand. So we have to consider that this might be a good time to try to make the film more in keeping with Disney's previous brand and cutting all those minutes to make it to keep it from being uh, too long. Lastly, from Mr. Eisner's perspective, I want to bring up a thing from for that would uh, you know something I thought of that was put me in his shoes. He's the CEO of Disney, never having been the CEO before, coming from ABC. He's not respected by anyone necessarily in the management pool. He's new. He's there because of the hostile takeover. The taking and he's been around for six months. If you were that leadership and you wanted to make sure that your leadership was respected, which you're not sure that it is, would you be able to cave to your animators and not make the cuts? I think there's a certain case to be made here that Mr. Eisner has to has to lay down the law and let them know how the business is run. The business is run by the business folks, and that means that it's done when push comes to shove in the case of Mr. Katzenberg for the cuts. Now, this is a drastic, drastic maneuver to make that play over the heads of his animators and everyone else. You'd like to be able to lead through a general understanding and through some level of consensus and be able to move forward as a team. However, I think there's something to be said for that the culture of Disney animation was not allowing this. We talked about how there was the original uh, set of core animators who were old and were doing things very, very old and slow, there was the new set of animators who are young and eager, and there's that second generation who had actually jumped ship and gone to make their own films. Mr. Eisner couldn't really risk the third set moving on to make their own films, and he also didn't necessarily need the first set anymore. They were old, they were going away, and they were expensive. So this is the first shot of what could be considered his decision to change the culture of Disney animation. And to do so, he needs to let them know the business is in charge and the cuts will happen. Now, the culture is something to be understood because that's a classic Disney move all the way back to, to Walt Disney. Um, some of you may know that in Dumbo, there's an entire song that they had the animators animate just because he won their union strike. And they all came back to work with their hats in hand and he paid them pennies. It's a classic move on Disney's part to not necessarily respect their animators. Now, that's an important distinction that they don't appreciate their animators. But in terms of the business acumen, they have a history of being on the side of management. Uh, Mr. Eisner, in that continuation of that tradition, may wish to reinstate not necessarily the draconian efforts that were put forward by Walt Disney, but he certainly might want to talk through with his team and say that the culture has to change to be more cost-effective, to be in keeping with the most efficient means of production, and to be able to make films on schedule and on budget. Um, and all that has to happen from a rather large display, in this case the display of having the film cut by management without the approval of animators and production teams. So certainly Mr. Eisner may not be popular, but he also may have set a standard that needs to be followed for the rest of his, his tenure as CEO. So I think you can see that I come down on the side of agreeing with Mr. Eisner's decision, which was his eventual decision, to make the cuts. I would have liked to have kept the film pure. I like to be able to respect the animators. I like to be able to respect the art. But in this decision, in this case, I come down on the side of Mr. Eisner. Uh, the cuts were made by Jeffrey Katzberg, again, a.k.a. Scissorhands. 
and the film suffered. Uh, the last act had some noticeable glaring errors. The sound didn't line up. Uh, several of the scenes that were ver that were very uh, cringeworthy were cut, and it didn't. It, it was again there were just juxtapositions and irregularities at the finish that made for a poor viewing experience. So this is what happened. The film was released with the cuts made, and there's no way to know whether it would have done anything differently, whether it had been pure or not. But what I can tell you is that The Black Cauldron wasn't any abysmal failure at the box office. I think it generated something like 18 to $20 million, a lot of this actually in a second run in France. And this is actually less than the Care Bear movies, the Care Bear movie that came out the weekend with it. It came in 6th or 7th on the weekend. It ran for approximately 6 weeks, 7 weeks in the United States, and was an abject failure. Now, my hot take on why it was a failure has stems from a lot of other branding issues and not necessarily the technical issues or the cuts that were made by the, made by the business folks. I think you have to understand that the brand issues that I brought forward previously were really, really apparent in that this was old-school animation taking on demonic themes. Um, the story revolves around an oracular pig, and when I say oracular, I mean that it can see the future. So this pig looks in the water, sees psychedelic visions, and understands that a demonic horde, led by the horned king, is going to take over the kingdom. So the small boy named Totten has to go on an adventure, find himself a harper, uh, his princess, whose name is Princess Ailanwi, uh, she is not ever regarded as a Disney princess, and their adventure just lacks cohesion. It's a complicated story that doesn't have any emotion, doesn't have any songs, you don't feel thing any for it, it's kind of boring, and it gets really dark and strange and scary, and even a little bit weirdly sexual at some point with the, with the, with the witches. Um, and so I think you can understand that this film turned out to be just an abysmal failure. Um, and so this is the beginning, though, of once this film failed so mightily, there were several actions that were taken. The first is that Mr. Eisner took the opportunity with Mr. Katzenberg to get rid of the first original guard of animators. So they got rid of all the old dead weight. And they also kept the third generation animators who had learned at least some of the classic animation techniques from the first, but didn't necessarily have the same ties or the same uh, you know, abilities to keep working slow. The new emphasis, the change of culture they were able to initiate allowed for cheaper films that were done in accordance with previous brand. To add insult to injury, The Black Cauldron was uh, beaten at the box office by the Care Bear movie, which is something that Disney and everyone found astounding. Uh, the Care Bear movie is a terrible film in its own right, but it's, a it's, it's generally just targeted at small children, and that small children market almost doubled the revenue that was accrued by The Black Cauldron. Um, and this is kind of an insult to uh, Disney Animation and Disney's uh, financial acumen there that they were even wanting to produce this film. So some of you may go back to the beginning of my podcast and ask why I've never heard of The Black Cauldron. And the main reason is this. The decision made about four or five weeks after release and that it was doing so poorly at the box office. And I mentioned because we talk about how the revenue comes in from you know, DVDs, not DVDs, not then, but certainly VHSs, Betamax, that kind of thing. So when you have a film, you want to sell it related merchandise. That's what Disney does well. Mr. Eisner and Mr. Cathbert made the decision to actually pull all VHSs, all Betamaxes, all ride production they were considering, all merch from Disney, warehouses, everything, and get rid of it. It was never released. 
So the movie was released in 1985. You couldn't buy a copy of this for home viewing until 1998 on VHS. It was also released once on DVD as the 25th anniversary, and those are the only copies that exist, at least officially, from Disney. So Disney's gone to a great deal of length and time and trouble to make the market forget this ever happened. This film, basically, they want to have never happened. It was so off-brand, and I get you, it was damaging to the mouse house. So they went to a point of erasing it from history to a certain point. And that may be justified because they didn't want to be tagged with having this kind of dark horror around their neck when they went on to cheaper and more fun-filled adventures like The Little Mermaid or Aladdin or The Lion King that all come kind of as a changeover of the culture that came out of the purge of animators from The Black Cauldron. So as you go forward, it's important that we think about not only was this a really dark moment for Disney, but it's also kind of the moment they changed the corner and went back to their original brand. And so the times we, the, you, if you were a Disney Renaissance fan, one of the reasons the Disney Renaissance happens is because of a changeover of animators to your Beauty and the Beasts and everything else. So the takeaway I have from this entire case study, in addition to about culture change, is one about actually trying to, you know, what could you do when you want to leave your wheelhouse? Disney's good at making films for children in a certain market segment, and when they tried to make something different and even move to a technical uh, superiority business model, they were pretty. there was a pretty large failure. So what can Disney do to learn what they did from this in the future? And I would say they did learn quite well in the future, because as the emergence of computer-generated animation started to take off, Disney did not try to develop this in-house. In fact, they went so far as to actually have a third party do it. And as you might know the name of this company, it's called Pixar. Well, Pixar came out of animators from Disney, but was not owned by Disney. They were just distributed by Disney. And they were the originators of your Toy Stories and your, uh, you know, your, your product innovation or your technical innovation in film in terms of, in terms of uh, animation on the computer. This was not to be reflected in Disney that if the films did poorly, that wouldn't damage their brand. However, as Pixar got better at what they were doing... Disney was more than happy to purchase Pixar and keep them in-house as a separate division. And the reason doing this is because they want to keep the brands separate. They couldn't actually make the changeover. And this lesson they probably learned the hardest from the Black Cauldron when they wanted a changeover to be more of a dark sister kind of play or they wanted to have that technical leadership. Um, and I think it's important to know what you can do in-house and what you can't do in-house or what you have to do separately. And I think Disney's learned this lesson very, very well. As uh, technical changes come, you will expect Disney to partner with the latest and greatest in animation and not do it themselves, and then possibly purchase that animation uh, talent when they have it uh, ready to go. All right. I want to say thank you to everyone who participated in the case study. I really appreciated your attention to detail and your emails about the case. Uh, there were a lot of people giving me feedback about what they thought should be happening and what company they thought I was talking about, and I really appreciate getting so much reaction from the, the community. If you want to email us at any time, uh, we're monopsonypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, One Buyer Podcast at Twitter, and we have a Patreon uh, if you'd like to become a patron, monopsonypodcast patreon.com. I want to say thank you, everyone. The next episode should be an interview we're going to do with a CEO, and I want you to all look forward to that. Until then.